This is In Conversation from Network Reorient, in association with Reorient Journal and the Critical Muslim Studies Project. To mark the launch of the new Critical Muslim Studies website, I sit with Professor Salman Said to discuss Critical Muslim Studies, a discussion that touches on decoloniality, anti-foundationalism, and Muslimness. Assalamu alaikum all. Welcome to this episode of In Conversation, a program of Network Reorient, part of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. In this episode, I have with me Professor Salman Said, and we reflect on the proliferation of Critical Muslim Studies and discuss some of its key themes. So I want to start off with a bit of a, um, a notice, shall we say, or an acknowledgement that in recent years, Critical Muslim Studies has proliferated um across the globe there's many people now trying to uh contribute to an understanding of something called critical muslim studies i remember back when i first started it wasn't so proliferated <laughs> but now alhamdulillah there's a lot of people joining in to the project so i thought it would be a good idea to restate the uh tenets of critical muslim studies what does it actually mean to be engaged with the project that is called Critical Muslim Studies. And for those of you who've read um, Professor Said's work, Recalling the Caliphate, you'll note that there's three pillars, the decolonial, the post-positivist, and the post-orientalist. And today we'll be adding a fourth one as well, the anti-Eurocentric, and obviously we'll go through that in due course. So, um, Professor Said's I would want to ask you first about the first of those pillars that I just mentioned, the decolonial. Now, obviously, we've spoken about this in the past on this podcast, in person, uh, in various other um, forums um, where critical Muslim studies has been a presence. But I want to ask a very kind of specific set of questions uh, regarding each of these pillars uh, today. And the first, with regards to the decolonial, is to what extent does the understanding of somebody who's working within critical Muslim, stand, uh, critical Muslim studies of the decolonial, how far does that map onto, um, well, the Latin American explanation of what the decolonial is? How do we navigate that space? Yeah. I think before I start that, I think I, already, um, I want to say two more things because I think you're right. There has been, alhamdulillah, proliferation of people saying that they're doing critical Muslim studies. And while it's not, you know, anyone's job to sort of say this is colonial, uh, this is critical Muslim studies and this is not criti uh, critical Muslim studies, I think it's worth pointing out what might be some of the features or animations that, um, gave emergence to this particular way of thinking about uh, critical Muslim studies and seeing the contrast between other proliferations of the use. Uh, often um, just simply adding the um, prefix critical and or using the idea of the Muslim as a, a replacement for the subject of critical race theory. Now, mm. I think the reason why it's done is because obviously, you know, um, people working in critical Muslim studies or myself and colleagues have been working together for many years, very, very sympathetic and very, very closely um, aligned and used and deployed things like critical race theory in our work, etc. So there's a, there's a family resemblance here 
mm. um, around some of the kind of intellectual and methodological and epistemological approaches. Um, but what is interesting, I would for uh, is really to sort of delineate those different pathways and uh, to see what they actually offer through that delineation. Mm. And your question about the decolonial and the Latin American experience um, and how that may be relevant, I think is critical here. Because one way of thinking about uh, uh, critical Muslim studies would be to think about it as the application of um, decolonial thinking to matters Islamic or uh, my preference would be matters Islamic hate. Mm. However, as we all know, an application isn't really um, useful because a proper there can be no proper application. It actually becomes an innovation. And what I would rather want to do is move away from thinking about simply applying the decolonial to to the Islamicate to thinking about what does it what happens when we put these two things into conversation mm. and what are the anomalies that it produces and this is why you need a critical Muslim studies rather than just simply uh, this expansion of the decolonial to look at phenomenon to uh, see uh, fixed upon Islamicate history and sources and immediately I think two things come up to mind one is the idea of what would a decolonization of the decolonial mean? And here I mean slightly, um, slightly tongue-in-cheek, but really a question about to what extent the decolonial is um, locked into a particular Atlantic-centric reading and a particular reading of history, which actually um, replicates a very Eurocentric account of historical development in its essential points. Now, this is just to open up a conversation rather than a, a rejection of the insights of the decolonial and its necessity, but to see what, how it works in different kinds of spaces. And the second thing is this, um, is contained between the idea of applying the decolonial to the Islamic rather than the Islamicate. Now, um, as you well know, Islamicate is a, a term introduced by Hodgson and taken up by many to try and get away from the, the theological of all mm. Muslim and Islamic from, uh, and, and the, the venture of Islam itself. And now sometimes what this means is what do we do with the category of religion which actually transforms the Islamicate into the Islamic. And what the decolonial does with that category of religion when it tries to run into um, try, talking about other historical formations. Mm. Did you want to come in there? or I want to... I think... There's something else I want to ask, and mm -hmm. I think you've, um, this may be a bit tangential, actually, but it's just something that's come to me. 
Um, you were talking about how the decolonial deals with the category of religion. Now, part of obviously my um, conversations I've had um, both online in person with various people has actually centered around the concept of power. How does the decolonial and then critical Muslim studies, not necessarily, they don't necessarily deal with that category in the same way. How, is there a difference there or is there not? Well, I think, yeah, I think that's one of the critical differences because in one way you have a very neat um, narrative about decoloniality and Muslims. And you can fixate on Granada and you can show that with the fall of Granada, you have the subalternization of Muslims and they join the others of the wretched of the earth in mm. terms of being um, subject to whiteness, subject to European global hegemony. And also you have these kind of nice links that, you know, Granada falls uh, and a year later you have... Um, if you uh, Christopher Columbus arriving on the shores of the Western Hemisphere, you have the linkages in relation to um, the idea that the uh, Muslimness is already present, but not only in his mind, but the use of interpreters, thinking about the indigenous people as more. So you have this kind of imagination which carries Muslimness across the Atlantic mm. and makes it part of that process. And at the same time, you have the subalternization of Muslimness. And you can see then how that would lend itself into a racialization of the Muslim subject who then joins these other subjects who are simply uh, suppressed by um, the, the, the um, venture of Europe in this case. Mm. But of course the challenge is this, that uh, 1492 happened only uh, a couple of decades after 15. 1453. And then there is 15, uh, you know, the, uh, in the next century, there is the Muslim siege of Vienna. There is the reason, one of the rationales for the expulsion, uh, eventual expulsions of Muslims and then and Jews, is the fear that there will be Muslim armies coming from Africa mm -hmm. to reclaim um, all the land and the possessions that they've lost. So in a way, the relationship of power at the time, mm. cannot be read at the relationship of power um, as it subsequently may have developed. So one of the things about the coloniality of power, or the matrix of power that the, uh, it puts together, is a solid hierarchy, mm. which is initially a hierarchy between the West and the non-West, but then it sort of manifests itself in relations of gender, or in relations of sexual orientation, in relations of all kinds of ways, the re those relationships are reproducing that hierarchy. The problem is this, that not every single moment of hierarchy is also a moment of oppression. Mm. There are many, many hierarchical relationships we're all involved in, we would not necessarily consider to be axiomatically oppressive. For example, parent children, or mm. student teachers, or there are many, many relationships. You would say, actually, um, here is someone 
who has expertise, authority, etc., etc. And while I acknowledge the hierarchy, I don't find that hierarchy uh, uh, repressive. Mm. So one of the issues then becomes around the issue of power is this, that can any instance of power itself, what are we trying to decolonize? Are we trying to decolonize every single manufacturation or instantiation of power mm. in world history? Or are we trying to decolonize a particular arrangement, a global racial order, which was imposed on the world, but also remade the world? So it wasn't an imposition it was a remaking of the world in particular configurations. Yeah. And we are all part of that configuration to some extent. Therefore, the challenge isn't just an external one to throw off our shackles, because many of those shackles have been completely internalized. We are produced by those shackles to some extent. And it is that which makes the whole decolonial complicated and more difficult mm. But also, I think it presents a specific sets of arranged problems and challenges for the way in which the Islamicate could appear in decolonial accounts. Mm. Because it neither sits as kind of a subalternization, but nor does it axiomatically fall into the category of a, uh, another variation of the colonial matrix of power that mm. racialized colonial order. It is neither of those things most of the time. And therefore, it, the application of the decolonial to the Islamicate has the potential to both invigorate this understanding of the Islamicate, but also to invigorate the understanding of the decolonial. Mm. Okay. Now, I want to kind of hone in on one of the points you made there are something that you kind of skirted around but I want to kind of get to the heart of it um you mentioned that you know for the Latin American experience 1492 is an important date well for Muslim experience as well it's an important date for slightly different reasons and that you know that's the start of the subjugation of uh, the Latin American, the, well, the Western Hemisphere, as it were, um, as well as the rest of the world subsequently after that. Um, and I guess that my question comes out, that second part, the rest of the world subsequently after that. So wouldn't you say that because of these differing relationships to power and power relations, even in the past, would you then say that the decolonial as understood by critical Muslim studies should have a different launching point, I want to call it. Not necessarily just in terms of dates. I know, obviously, we've spoken in the past about 1798, but I'm talking even more theoretically than that, in terms of like an understanding of who had power when and what that actually means in terms of a development of basically a decolonial slash anti-colonial movement, however that may look in various places on earth, basically. So do you think then that, going back to the question, does critical Muslim studies need to have a different theoretical starting off point as well than the decolonial as understood elsewhere? I think critical Muslim studies, if it is to be, um, have a narrative which goes beyond our understanding, which goes beyond the kind of experience of 
uh, diasporic Muslims in, in, in the global north, which I think it should do, by the mm. way, it's not, um, then I think it certainly needs to have a um, different, or at least to engage with the challenge that ultimately decoloniality rests upon a very Eurocentric narrow understanding of the rise of the West. So if you mm. look at most of the scholarship around the rise of the West recent years, tends to locate it either in the sort of 16th, long 16th century, mm. going up till about the, uh, you know, 1700s and, and further. But all of these very kind of Eurocentric accounts would actually say something happened here, more or less. If you look at the kind of rise uh, of the West story or the birth of the modern, that's what they wanted to. Now, some may push it a little bit later, mm. and some may push it a little bit earlier, but it is around there's some sort of ruptural moment in the long 16th century, which is which transforms mm. the world that we live in or actually makes the world that we live in now. Yeah. And this is an account that I think, you know, many, many people who would not say they're decolonial um, thinkers of any kind would share and accept this kind of ruptural mm. moment there. Now, there are others, you know, people like Andre Gunter Frank, um, just to name, um, or Janet Abu Lukhad, or, um, you know, Jack Goody, who have tried to sort of locate the rise of the West to displace it to sort of either a kind of a Eurasian miracle that precedes the European miracle. So they talk about the Bronze Age or Jared Diamond's very sort of popular um, book on the idea that really it's all down to the uh, tilt of continents and it goes further back into time, etc. So, but once you get that, you you mm. know things will just develop the way it is anyway. Um, so I think, but the most conventional accounts still fixate upon the sixteenth, long sixteenth century. But this is a period not of European global hegemony. It is a period of contest. Um, in which you would argue that the Sinosphere and the Islamicate were far more um, significant players on the global stage at the time. Mm. Um, it is also the case, with the exception of the Western Hemisphere, nearly wherever the um, Europeans went, they met Muslims. I mean, this is the other kind of, the kind of proto-globalization of the Islamicate had already occurred. Um, it's a period of expansion, both um, at the of East Asia and the Islamicate, in all kinds of directions and things like that. Mm. So once you put that into into play, then the question about the significance of 1492 has to be read almost kind of teleologically. You say, "Aha! This is what happened." Mm. Well, you can imagine different kind of counterfactuals where that would displace that beginning. It is not inevitable that 1492 leads to, uh, you know, the establishment 
of the European Union um, mm. in the 90s or, you know, it's various kind of consolidation. It doesn't just follow there, you know, this kind of line that mm. we can talk about contemporary prosperities of the global north as axiomatically linked to 1492. Now, there is no doubt that it is the annexation of the Western Hemisphere was a very, very important part of the story. Mm. But one would want to think that that in itself may be a contingent event and contingency upon contingency may just as well be a better account than the idea that this was a moment of the birth of Europe fully formed. Mm. Okay, I'm reminded of, um, I've actually forgotten the name of the author and the book title, but it's a French author who wrote um, a book called HHH, and then his next book was actually a counterfactual about the Aztecs actually coming to Europe and taking over and colonizing Europe. So um, if I think of that, I'll put it in the, uh, obviously, the description of this episode for listeners to go ahead and uh, read that interesting sounding counterfactual. Um, So what I want to do now is actually explore this contingencies upon contingencies thing a bit more, because I think this links to uh, another pillar of... um, I don't know whether we should talk about them as in pillars in a way. That sounds something too sturdy. I think there's more about really ensemble of uh, arguments that we put together to try and give shape a certain regularity and a certain uh, regularity to disperse phenomenon of critical okay. studies rather than so, a building, a, you know, architectural form uh, built around particular pillars. Um, I think, mm. you know, also, should we then not have five or six then, or, you know, these pillars? Oh, uh, I guess eight for consistency, nine, yeah, you know, yeah, is, yeah. I, is, I think what you mean for consistency. I mean, I don't know, we'll have to think of another couple then just <laughs> to ensure, you know, that kind of... Uh, consistent behavior as it were as muslims um but yeah regularity and dispersion or re- re- regular dispersed things i guess our concepts yeah. shall we say um so the contingencies upon contingencies actually points to another one of these regular dispersed concepts um which is that of post positivism now before we get into more exploring the contingencies upon contingencies because that's um going to be further down the line um i want to ask as a first kind of salvo uh, for this um, part, what does it mean to think ontologically? What does that actually, what, what are the ramifications of switching from the ontic to the ontological? What does it actually do for us, in other words? Again, the problem is this, that it can do a lot or it can do very little. I mean, mm. the, the problem is this, that many people um, nowadays use ontological as a way of saying uh, materialist um, mm. because they've kind of either been persuaded or been uh, mindful of the critique of uh, unadulterated materialist accounts through post-structuralism and, 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 and related approaches. So... Uh, ontology is what you say when you can't uh, say materialist. So often it's used simply to assert, Mm. I'm doing an ontological analysis, what is the ontology of something, and you end up talking about materialism, um, basically materialist Mm. accounts. 
which make a separation between the material and the ideal or the material and the linguistic, etc., the representation of the constitutive. I think the way that the um, distinction that you refer to is obviously the one that um, Heidegger um, introduces the ontological distinction where he makes a difference between the ontic and the ontological. Um, and I think the best way or most useful way to think about the ontological is really to think about, it allows us to ask questions about the constitution of entities rather than simply um, taking those entities for granted. And I think that means in an academic space, often the ontological really is about what, for example, are the frameworks or conditions or how can we think about the question of the being of something mm. rather than just simply enumerating the instances of its existence. And I think that seems to me that might be a useful way of doing that. Now, whether it's useful or not, um, it really depends on what you're going to do. And I think ultimately, um, I would argue or suggest or propose that critical Muslim studies is, ult is pragmatist um, to its soul, uh, if it is anything. And there is a question about what would be useful as a way of mm. helping us to understand the world that we live in. Okay. Now I want to um, jump off, off of that. Um, and I think one thing that critical Muslim studies, as I understand it, finds very useful is the idea of anti-foundationalism. And now this links back to the contingencies upon contingencies, which we spoke about earlier. Could you please uh, explain for our listeners what is anti-foundationalism and how does it help in the how does it help with what critical Muslim studies is trying to achieve? You know, I don't talk to people very much, so but why and they don't talk to me very much either. But one of the things that does come up is often the concern and the sense of queasiness that the ideas of anti-foundationalism uh, produce among. Uh, many very good uh, Muslims. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, because at one level there is the issue, but if you're saying you're anti-foundationist, you think that anything goes. And if you're anti-foundationist, you think that, uh, you know, there is no God, God is the ultimate foundation, etc., etc. And my response has always, I wouldn't say always been, but lately my response to the question about whether a Muslim can be anti-foundationalist is to argue, and you know, I rarely make these kind of theologically strident movements or any kind of, and this is not a exercise of takfirism, but I would say in a roundabout way that my understanding is that to be a Muslim, you have to be an anti-foundationalist, which is to do with the fact, and there's a kind of an argument around that. One, the notion of foundations that we have owe a lot to the category of incarnation invariance of Christian thought. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the idea that God and human um, become one in the body of um, Christ. I think for most Muslims, most of the time, this is an impossibility. The divine and the human can never actually 
they can never become one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even the prophets, the highest, they, all they can do is be close to and not become mm. uh, uh, in general, okay? Once you accept that, then the notion of the foundation and as a way of girding everything becomes um, really difficult to sustain, except in a sense the foundation is God as the absolute, but that God is always between the God and the human is a void which is filled by um, the message, it's filled by history, it's filled by human endeavor. And in Mm. the end, anti-foundationism at its best is a recognition of the historicity of our world rather than an idea that the world we inhabit, the social world we inhabit, is outside history. Uh, And that, I think, is critical. Now, it seems to me that when you talk about um, the notion of anti-foundationism, when people often say, well, what that means is that you think that anything can go. Mm, Um, Yeah. And the problem with that is people who often do that are the ones who haven't ever read many anti-foundationists or any good ones, I suppose. It's certainly not what I would argue um, anti-foundationism means. Anti-foundationism means simply a recognition of the frailty of humanity and uh, the the finitude of humanness and the historicity of our being which means that, you know, we can all imagine, imagine a thought experiment. You'd have to be a very peculiar kind of person to think that supposing you were, um, you know, you were born in a household where people spoke Swahili. Um, you can imagine that's what you would speak or you'd be familiar with that. Or if you're born in a household uh, and you spoke Uyghur um, and, you know, you were not being suppressed to speak Uyghur, that would be a language that you would be familiar with. So it's not, and I don't think it requires a great challenge that for us to do this. So if you can, so there's no kind of, so there's a recognition of the contingency of humanity, mm. both at an individual level and a social level, and a recognition of the historicity. And I think that is the key um, I would I would put to us that it seems to me that anti-foundationism is a recognition that where we are is a product of historic contingent arrangements in history which then are put together. Mm. Now, how that differs from, um, let's say, Marxist accounts is where their anti-foundationalism is reoccupied in the notion of history as having this kind of force outside human mm. um, ability to act upon it. It is simply the logics of capital, for example, working through there. And this is what I think the anti-foundationalism that I would say is necessary for critical Muslim studies would relocate it in the primacy of the political, and by that it means that it is basically human effort, collective human effort, that is the engine of historical you've, transformation and situatedness. You've actually uh, preempted my next question, because my next question was going to be about, um, you spoke about the gap between the human and uh, God. 
and you've said this is filled with human endeavor. And I actually wanted to ask you to explain this in relation to politics and the political and how critical Muslim studies understands these things and how it understands, I guess, the temporary nature of things, um, if I can put it that way. Um, how does it understand these things in relation to the political? Well, as you know, in recording the caliphate, I use this um, quote that Iqbal talks about in the reconstruction of religious thought um, about you know reminding us mm. that the prophet ascends the highest heavens and then returns, and we could, and the fact that the return, as Iqbal points out, is the prophetic, but it's also the return would be another way of thinking about it, is the political because the return of the prophet is transformational of society. It is about to treat, uh, transform belief into practice, into social practice. Mm. And in a way, this is the fusion between the ethical and the political, because the mission then becomes the gap. If you are a believer, then part of your effort is in that gap between the divine and the human to move towards that horizon. And the, and the divine is a horizon. It is not something that you mm. will ever Reach. capture, but yeah. it is the direction. It gives you the kibla. It is the, where you move towards that, right? So for me, in a way that um, human effort is political, even though many people would argue or don't think of it as political. So, for example, um, people who do charity work, people who uh, engage with others, you are constantly in your environment. Um, mm. You know, and, and there will always be, and at the point when you do that, there will be moments of uh, dispute, disagreement, mm. even uh, with goodwill on both sides, or you know, I, I don't want to exclude that. Yes, I have moments when I think anyone disagrees with me must be something wrong with them, but you know, one should be humble enough to recognize that they may feel the same. Yeah. So, in a way, what you're doing here is recognizing that this contingency is really about how particular arrangements are put together for mm. a time. And again, it's interesting to see how many times the Quran warns of social arrangements that were in place and then were uprooted for one reason or another. So mm. there is a sense of the temporariness I mean, of human endeavor, which means that, in fact, anti-foundationism is written into the temporariness of human endeavor, which means mm. that the struggle for justice... Mm. Is, is is you know ongoing and, you know humans are finite but the struggle for justice is infinite so yeah. it is on that kind of basis that we are constantly trying to come up with answers um and questions to those answers as a way of moving f moving ourselves towards that divine horizon mm. i want to um now interrogate one of the concepts which you just mentioned, and I think you've kind of done it already with the divine horizon, but if you could give a bit more 
about what your understanding of the ethical is, especially, actually, especially in opposition to something that people would call morality, morals. Are they the same thing? Are they not? What, what, what's, what's the position? Yeah. The distinction I make uh, between ethics and moral, morality is very, it's, it's, it's kind of central to my way of understanding things. It seems to me that all arrangements, social arrangements, have a morality about, by morality I just mean what customs and practices that we think are the way that goodness should be uh, perpetuated at certain points. At the same time, there's always the possibility that someone, some people, others may come to the realisation that what we consider to be moral behavior is unethical behavior. Mm. And you could see the kind of one way of thinking about uh, human society is, is, you know, see that possibility of different arrangements or, or, or different at, uh, arrangements of moral behavior being corrected by these ethical impulses. Mm. Um, you know, people saying, well, actually, to be a better person, we need to stop doing what we've been doing before and start doing this. So for me, ethical is simply, it doesn't have a, um, it doesn't have a particular content except the will to be just or to mm -hmm. correct um, things. Um, so in a way, it is the attempt always to see how we can change what is to what ought to be. And, mm. and that mismatch that we always, you know, people experience collectively between how things they would like things to be and how things should be ought or to be. ought to be. Yeah. Yeah. And the ethical then is one framework of saying, well, actually, how we should be. So, for example, there is a mosque or maybe a mosque uh, in London, um, I think, which has a rule in its committee that only people of a particular nationality can be on its committee. Mm. Now, by that logic, it would mean that the prophet himself would not be able to be a member of that mosque committee. Mm. And I would say to you that in my kind of um, humble understanding, anything um, that diminishes the umatic in any kind of Muslim practice is probably something that is more to do with the baneful influence of the racial colonial order and its uh, crystallization into sort of national ethnic ethnicities rather than something that I would say is, is, is um, uh, you know, inherent in the Islamic kingdom. And one of the things we would say is that, you know, we would want to say that the Islam should be mobilized in relation to uh, pursuing the Ummatic against the racializing um, and ethnification of particular practices, etc. Now, what that means, in you know, what it actually means mm. in concrete would be contextual. Um, and different moves may have different move, uh, different effects, but that should be the intention, I think. Mm. Mm. Okay.
Um, thank you very much, Professor uh, Sayed. I think we'll leave this first part here and inshallah we'll cover uh, the other two uh, regularly dispersed concepts in the next part. Thank you very much. Sorry. This is another episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast arm of Critical Muslim Studies. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes and please leave a like and a rating.